Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone. Phoebe here with a very quick note before we actually get into this very special episode. There are spoilers ahead for the entire Percy Jackson and the Olympians book series, the entire first season of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians TV series, and for the end of the TV series Black Sails, if you ever plan to watch it, which you should. So proceed with caution and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And today we're joined by none other than the co-creator of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians TV series, John Steinberg. Hello, John. Welcome. Hi, guys. First of all, this week, by the time this episode comes out, season one has officially ended. So congratulations in advance. You have successfully yeah. put The Lightning Thief to screen in full, and it's wonderful. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> it's been so cool to get to see the way you all have sort of taken this story and brought it forward. Like, I've every single change, I feel like, has always made me think, which is, I love. I'm so excited by that. So I'm so excited also, hopefully, fingers crossed, to see <laughs> where, where a lot of the stuff you're laying out is going, too. Yeah, like I, I've told you before, but I'll say it again. I I really appreciate seeing this story told by people who clearly have a lot of respect for the story and for the heart of the thing, but are also looking for ways to enhance and build on what already existed there. That specific approach is is really exciting to watch, to see you all finding new pathways through this story. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, um. I mean, I think that's how you show it your love, right, is by trying to figure out how to add things and 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 um help it transition in, into a totally different if different form I, I really do but i know sort of talked about it a lot in the last couple months but I, I really do believe that if you try to port over um a, a format a medium into an entirely different medium without being willing to go through this exercise um you just kind of end up with something that doesn't feel like um 
feel like it wants to be the new thing. It doesn't want to be a show or a movie or whatever we're calling this. Um, it it feels like um, the the shorthand we used in 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 developing this was we never wanted it to feel like a tribute band. Um, we never wanted it to feel like somebody playing the Percy Jackson covers and and sort of um, you know appealing to nostalgia and nostalgia only. We we wanted for it to feel like it was a living, breathing thing that that captured the soul of of the the original. Um, form and 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 frankly all the way back to the words on the page you know captured the the feeling that you get from reading it um but but knew that it was going to um have to exist in in, in a different body i guess so uh, it's it's really it's good it's a good feeling and and i think it's um it's it's heartening to see that um in its new form it's it's speaking to people who knew it already and and speaking to people who were just meeting it this way and I can only speak for the people who grew up reading it, but I do think you've really captured the heart of the story and in a way that's also making me think about what that heart is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, trying to, it, the more familiar you are with something, I think sometimes it can be a little hard to, um, it can be easy to, to, to lose sight of where its its soul is. You know, you're, you're kind of used to its rhythms and used to the things it's doing. And, and so I think it's been a healthy mix of people who, know this you know know that book upside down and backwards and and people who um you know came to it a little later and and can apply a different lens to it speaking of people that know the books upside down and backwards i think one of the most interesting things to me about this particular adaptation um in a way that's probably a bit different than what you've done before with books um is the fact that you had the author in the room with you um, not only initially, but like as full parts of the conversations, having both Rick and Becky be part of the process of bringing it to the screen. So I was curious how that impacted uh, the way you approached the series. Um, new, definitely new. Um, you know, I've, I've had a kind of a relationship with, with an author or, or with somebody who, um, you know, came to the material having been there before and, and having created it, but never like this. It's interesting, you know, I mean, I think even even if Rick and Becky had decided they didn't want to be a part of this and, and weren't so involved, I think I probably would have come to it with um, a similar measure of um, awareness that this isn't mine, um, you know, that, that the, the property, the, the story um, is is something that um, that someone else lives in and has lived in for a long time and, you know, trying to be respectful of that and, and um, aware of it. I think having that person there to show you around the house and 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 to um, you know I think make us all feel welcome in 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 this story, um, especially knowing that they'd had a rough experience the last time anybody else had kind of been in there trying to execute this process, is has been really important and and I think was was critical to being able to find this. You know, to 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 go through the process of um, being willing to change things, but knowing that you were you had some guardrails um, and and a compass to to know when you were heading in the right direction. Um, so they were they were they were really good hosts, I think. You know, in in the in the story to to help you know make that possible. Yeah, I I find that I can, I I feel at least that I can see their influence throughout the show, <laughs> um, and it's it's wonderful to see. I, I'm curious too, though. I since this isn't your first time dealing with a pre-existing text or or well-loved characters or stories, since you've you've done it a couple times now, um, is there a 
specific way that you find yourself approaching a book when you know you're bringing its characters or its story to the screen? Like, have you developed any kind of adaptational philosophy when you're looking to translate a story like Percy's or Silver's or Dan Chase's? Um, it's conversation, I think, with the story. Um, I think I, anytime I read anything, um, with very few exceptions, I'm having instincts about, you know, what I like and, and what I, I understand less and what feels interesting to me. And a lot of times involuntarily, like I would have done this differently, or, you know, what if this was connected to this or the conversation comes from the sense of, um, what are my options here? Um, you know, when it's a job, what are, what are my options? How, how, um, and I don't just mean in terms of um, of a rights holder or or in terms of you know anything that um, mechanical. I mean in terms of an audience. Sometimes um, you know with Treasure Island, I felt like I had a little bit of leeway. Um, book's been around for a bit, and I think um, in addition to it being you know a hundred and however many years old, that story was really about reinterpreting story and so you come into it knowing that you have not just sort of some freedom to move things around but that that's part of the idea as part of the conceit um is to suggest that um that the narrative is is compromised this is the first one i've come into and really sort of felt from the beginning a not just an obligation but a desire to stick to it um to kind of give an audience um a thing they desperately wanted and, and I think we're entitled to, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's IP of this size gets put on screen a lot, you know, it's kind of part of the landscape right now. And this was one that for, you know, for a lot of very understandable reasons, hadn't been through that and, and, you know, wanting to do it justice. And I think make the experience of, of, of seeing it as a fan, something um, enjoyable and fun and not damaging, I think. But, um, you know, I think with this one, um, I felt it. You know, I, I felt sort of the, the the desire to really start planting flags in the ground around things and feel like, all right, let's show this. This feels like something if I had been reading this book for the last 15 years, I'd really want to see. And at the same time, once you start writing scenes, sometimes the pieces don't line up anymore. You know, you've removed connective tissue and you got to figure out another way to get from here to there. So, mm. um, you know, I, I guess this is all by way of saying they're all different, but I think in some ways they're all similar. They're all, you're just trying to see your way through. How do I write these scenes? And how do I make you feel at the end of this thing? Like you went on a, on a journey you didn't have to consult a book for along the way uh, and, and that it stands on its own feet. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's funny that you you mentioned that uh, the idea of, of Treasure Island being sort of compromised and that you don't know how to trust it. But also Percy Jackson is a story that is being told by an extremely opinionated and biased 12 year old. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'm I'm curious, since Percy isn't narrating this show, how do you find yourself managing adapting something that does have such a specific tone and voice to it that the entire story is being filtered through in the book? I mean, that's that's kind of that's right at the top of the list of, of where this exercise gets um, is a challenge that that so much of that book is is um, is in his head. You know, it, it's not just told by him, but it's told by him to him. And I think it it took me a minute. I think Daphne was part of this conversation to sort of realize why, you know, there were moments that I think I was having a hard time figuring out how to part over literally. And it's because you say things in your head you'd never say to another person. Um, they mm. come off differently. Um, 
you say in your head and, and it's charming or it's snarky or whatever you say it to another person and you're just somebody nobody wants to be around. And, and so, you know, finding that new balance of, um, how do you, how do you express this tone that is, that is Percy's voice and, and his, um, his, his way of seeing the world in a way that is, um, and not monologue. And I think that was just by feel, you know, just trying to understand him and where he's coming from and what he means when he says these things in his head and, and finding new ways to say them. Yeah. That's, I actually, a long time ago, probably like 10 years ago now, I once went through The Lightning Thief and like cut out all of his internal monologue and just looked at the dialogue that he was actually speaking was aloud in the actual, yeah. it was like, he, he doesn't talk all that much actually. <laughs> and yeah. It was yeah. fa a fascinating exper experiment. <laughs> I can't be honest, I, I confess, I didn't notice it when I read it the first couple of times like I didn't really notice it until I got into writing these scenes and started feeling this tension between the voice that that I felt was in my head from the canon and the voice that I felt like needed to somehow express itself on screen I was, and then it hit it was like oh that's why um you know because this isn't just a um you know from a a, a novel to a, a screen adaptation kind of an exercise this is taking something in a head you know, in a, in a, in a kid's head. Um, so even more unfiltered in some way and, um, figuring out how to make it, make it sound right. So, mm. yeah, I'm surprised there's anything left. I'm trying to remember all the stuff. <laughs> no, we talked for a long time about how like he goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs in the, in the first chapter. And then his first spoken line of dialogue is that like dead serious, I'm going to kill her. And you're like, weren't you just telling me jokes two seconds ago? <laughs> yeah. 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 And imagine meeting that kid, right. Where he hadn't said anything. And that's the first thing. So it's like you, you start to get a sense for how, um, you know, this 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 translation is really um, it's happening in every moment. You know, you hope it's invisible, but it's really there's there's energy applied to every moment of his experience to to make it make it work in this medium. I'm curious also, were there any particular breakthrough moments you can talk about where you felt like you found the voice initially? That's a really good question. Um, yes. Um, can I remember what they are? I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, I, there's so much material that kind of flows through this that it all eventually starts to blend together. But there were definitely moments early on um, of finding things that felt like um, the screen Walker Scobell, uh, this show version of that voice that both matched the voice of the, sh of the book, but, but were new. It's interesting that frequently when I felt like I found it, they tended to be the things that walked right up to the line of feeling like they were too far. Mm. You know, I think um, there was a little concern about the acorn joke uh, about the pine cone. Um, <laughs> and to me, that was a little bit of like, oh, okay, I think I'm starting to get it. And, and there was a little bit it's awfully <laughs> insensitive. I was like, wait, isn't that kind of the idea? So, you know, it's, I think part of what makes the, the book so compelling is that he is always walking that line of being somebody who... Mm has an edge that is, um, it's not off-putting, it's endearing, but you got to ride the line to get there. And so I think part of the breakthroughs were sort of finding that line again, you know, finding something that that was going to be charming because of how irreverent it was, but not so irreverent that it made you, um, you know, not want to be around him anymore. That's funny, because that line to me, I, I remember feeling like, oh, it was sort of a reminder to me, like, oh, he's 12. <laughs> <laughs> like, he doesn't really have that lived experience yet of like, hmm, Maybe I should be a little more sensitive. Totally, this. and this is all. I think you know. At that point in the story, I think he's still um, a tourist a little bit. 
um you know and not not fully to me that was that was the 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 underlying subtext was that this in some respect this wall wasn't quite real yet like he'd fought a minotaur and he'd done all the stuff and he saw the oracle and but there was something about it that wasn't quite his yet um you know mm. quite plug into his head um and that that was a little bit the the spine on which the season was hung um was getting to a point in the middle of the season where it does become his um and these things aren't um like i don't think that's a joke he'd make again you know in the second half of the season i think that's um a door you walk through once where you feel like wait a minute i think this is um this is as much about me and for me and and and, and affects me um as anyone to that end um a question i had because i i went back and i was listening to a lot of your interviews on fathoms deep and i noticed how much you talk about mythology in the way you think about story so I was really curious, since myths play a much more literal role in this story, if that at all impacted the way you were thinking about it. Um, or, like, were there myths that don't come up in The Lightning Thief that you found yourself still thinking about? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think both in, in sort of the the high-altitude sense, right? Like, I think the um, uh, it's hard not to think about Odysseus in some respect, um, when you're looking at the story, you never want it to feel like you're um, cribbing off it because it's a very different kind of story, but it's there. Um, there's times when it's specific. Um, you know, I think the Hera's throne, the golden throne was something that was a little more specific of um, a piece where it felt like, oh, you know what would work really nicely in this moment is this other story that's prefab, like I didn't make it up, but it, it, it just kind of slots into that space really nicely. Um, having Daphne Olive around to find those pieces and put them where they belong is is um is really helpful. But yeah, they're they're always there. I think um it just removes that part of the filter, I guess, where when, you know, on on sales, it was always in the back of my head, but you can write about it. Like it just was sort of um hmm. scaffolding. And here it's um it's the star of the show. So it's a little bit easier to to use it, I guess. Yeah, because I've also heard you talk about, like, speaking of Odysseus, like, I've heard you talking about, like, Achilles and Odysseus and, like, the Kleos and Nostos of it all, too, which we've talked about a little bit um, as well, just, uh, at, like, at the premiere, and, our, and I asked you about it, I think, in our um, press conference. And I've always also found that, like, divide pretty funny, personally, because basically one of my favorite stories um, is about a Spaniard named Vasquez, but also... <laughs> <laughs> Also, um, one of my favorite stories is a good friend of mine when we were starting college together. Uh, she ended up being randomly assigned the person that would end up becoming both of our advisors uh, in classics. And on literally the first meeting with this professor, she said, oh, I think I want to study this. And the professor sat her down and said, OK, well, the first thing you need to know about classics is that there are Iliad people and Odyssey people. And you have to pick one. This is less really? than Yeah. <laughs> and you know what to... right she was right 100 percent right <laughs> i don't know i i like um i i feel like some attribution is necessary like this is um my my undergraduate class on on classical heroes with um with greg Naj's all of this like and i never stopped thinking about it but i i feel like they're in conversation with each other i, I feel like um you know it, it's always um it's never gone away, I think, um, from the way I think about story, um, that these two poles exist, this sense of wanting to um, to go home and withdraw from the world in favor of comfort and in favor of 
security and 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 uh, safety and whatever you want to call it, and this call to walk away from that in favor of some different kind of meaning and legacy and glory and all of those things. And you could talk about this for days. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that the, that's how sort of how simple those two poles are and, and also how elemental they are. And I just, um, I, I feel like there are things that I, are always a, a waypoint in, in my understanding of a story I'm trying to tell is when I understand where those two things are operating mm -hmm. in the story. And I think one of one of the many things that I, I think is really clever and, 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 and pretty about the way Lightning Thief is structured is it's fully having that conversation in every moment, mm. you know, specifically, right? It's like, I'm, I am going on a journey to either find my mother and bring her home and be her little boy again, or save the world at the expense of her and, and, you know, and move into another part of my, my existence. Like, I don't know how else to articulate that divide other, you know, any more cleanly. So yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, I would I would take issue with you have to choose one or the other. I think there are two halves of the same conversation. So um, to be under I think to understand either one of them, you have to sort of be fully engaged with the other. Yeah. That being said, I'm still going to ask you if you had to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I always connect to the Odyssey a little bit more. Um, because, I don't know what that says about me, but I, I think um, the pull of home, I guess, is really compelling. But I don't know that I've ever read that book or experienced it without thinking about the other. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like I, I assume this is sort of. I mean, maybe I was the last person to find this out, but there were a number of them of Odysseys from of other characters in the Iliad going home, and that's always sort of something in the back of my mind too. That, you know, they feel like this um, kind of you know these two hemispheres of a story, but it's just because those are the ones that survived, and there's all these other ways of thinking about getting home. So that that also kind of lives in the back of my head sometimes too, to not get too wrapped up in in the models, you know, as if they're the only ways to tell a story. There are a way to tell a story, but not going. That's something that I thought was also interesting when you're talking about like the Treasure Island stuff, because I always think about like it's for me, um, storytelling and myth and classics are so connected to each other because that's sort of like what we know about storytelling at its root comes from what we know about classics at its root, because that's sort of un I mean, for better or worse, the Iliad and the Odyssey are two of the oldest uh, written stories we have um and so being able to trace it all back is something i've always found like just so fascinating of like what is the beating heart of what you know kind of haunts us as we roof through life that is like continued on from such ancient times i think when a story hits that tone pitch frequency that makes you feel something that's so true it kind of ceases to be about what you're watching and it's just this sort of a uh, sense of feeling um, a connection because of of, of how um, deeply felt that moment is, and then when you feel it amongst a number of people, so you're now you're hitting something that's um, a really shared experience. Um, I feel like those are the kind of stories that keep sticking, and I feel like that one way to look at classical mythology or, or any of those kinds of stories is those are the ones that are so true they just won't go away. They're they're touching something that is so universal to human experience. Um, they can't be avoided, you know, it has to, it's rooted in being born and separating from another human being and, you know, all of the kind of things that you can't be a human being without going through. And I, and so I think, um, you know, another one of the things I love about these books is it's taking all of those things and making them fresh and new again, which is, which is pretty cool without undermining any of the truth of it, which I think is great. Mm. 
I'm trying hard not to talk too much about Luke because we're going to get into Luke. And once we get into Luke, we will stay there. But I do feel <laughs> like we can't talk about Klaus and Nessus without bringing him up. Just because I we had a longer conversation about it while after watching 102 um, because Luke it seems like had had sort of convinced himself that Percy was a glory seeker like him, but in truth, all all Percy was really looking for in that episode was like a place where he fits and that he can call a home now that he's lost his mom, yeah. and that that was sort of the first of many mistakes he would he he will make he would make and will make when it comes to trying to predict Percy. And I just I I felt like I could see that part of the theme like so clearly in that episode, and I loved it. Um, but I also think I mean it's interesting to talk about in relation to like characters like Annabeth who, I mean, we also had a long conversation about this when we read uh, In Sea of Monsters, Annabeth Tries to Swim Home. And those two, like, sort of conflicting sides of Annabeth, where part of her does think that she can, like, rebuild the world and do it better than anyone else and leave her mark in that way. But at the core of it is also the fact that she's so driven by trying to bring her home and her family back together, especially once Luke leaves it. Yeah. So I, I guess my the question in me just talking is... Um, where else are you sort of feeling that like close nostos dichotomy? <laughs> I mean, everywhere. That's not a cop out, right? I think I think they um, Annabeth is an interesting flavor of that story because the idea of going home for her is so freighted with the lack of all of the things that should drive homecoming, right? Like the lack of comfort, the lack of security, the lack of certainty. Home doesn't mean any of those things for her, really, or not in the same way it does for for Percy. So. Um, her conversation between homecoming and, and glory seeking is misshapen, I guess, a little bit because because of her her experience. Luke, I think it was really important to engage with all of that because it felt like I wanted to understand how when I got to the twist, spoiler alert, um, you know, that you you didn't feel it wasn't the end of Scooby Doo. Like it wasn't a moment of some pulling a mask off and you feel like, oh, they were pretending to be somebody else. There's not a scene in the show where he is pretending to be anybody other than who he is. He's actually being super forthcoming with Percy from the very beginning about the way he sees the world and his irreverence towards authority and, 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 and. Like he's he's basically saying everything except the the, mm. the punchline. And that just felt like a um, a way of seeing that relationship and, and specifically that character that had legs. Um, that made it a little harder to dismiss him as a threat because it wasn't just the physical threat. There's the sense that at some point on Percy's worst day, some of those arguments were going to find foothold. You know, despite the fact that they don't really find one in the second half of the first season, I think the suggestion of, of the ending is that 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 battle is far from from over. Mm. And I think it, it comes from that, right? Like the the more maybe you don't have a sense of. Um, a feeling of security and safety and all those other things in homecoming, the more the glory seeking sounds like a pretty good, pretty good gig. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that was sort of the, the, the landscape in which that, that Luke story was, um, was conceived for, for this version of the story. Mm -hmm. One of the things I found the most striking about this version of the betrayal too, is the fact that Luke, he, to him, Percy is going to be on his side. Like, he doesn't believe, at least at the beginning of the scene, he does not, he, he believes by the end. But, <laughs> um, you know, he doesn't believe that Percy's, I, I think Phoebe even pointed this out to me, um, he doesn't believe that Percy's going to say no. And yeah. it, in a way, he's, like, trying to build that community with him. Yeah, like, part of the way um, the, the Charlie and Walker are, you know, they're amazing. And, and I think part of what they brought to it was 
that, right? There's a way to watch that scene and feel like um, that Luke thinks he's just opening a door for somebody who's already knocking. And there's a way to look at it where Luke knows he's wrong and is kind of hoping that someone will say it, you know, um, that that the that there's this weird sense of um, not guilt exactly, but this this um, I, I don't know, an, an awareness that um, that he's the bad guy. He can't figure out why he's the bad guy mm -hmm. um, because everything he's saying makes sense. But I think he knows it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that to me is an interesting bad guy, you know, somebody who um, who is so desperately trying to be anything but. And um, I think uh, it, it really is like wired into. I mean, I, I I'm sometimes curious how I would watch the show if I hadn't read the book. Um, and there are moments that are so loud to me, and especially in 102 in, in the camp scenes, of feeling like um, you know in this place that's so sacred and 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 is um, a space that God's made. To hear these two older boys joking about the gods in that way feels so irreverent to me. Like it feels so like they're advertising that, you know, something something's wrong here. Um, but I know where this is going, so no, I don't I don't have fresh eyes into that. Mm. But yeah, no, I mean I think um, I think part of that whole experience was him feeling Percy out because you know is this somebody who's who can hear the truth, the truth, you know, as as I see it and 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 buy into it and and clearly he felt like he had found someone who could and he just missed or percy's experience with annabeth and grover um brought him back from some kind of a ledge he could have been pulled off of if luke had made that pitch in a different different way hmm. a ledge at the edge of a pit uh yeah yeah well done yeah exactly <laughs> i did i did find that probably one of the most fascinating parts of that um dynamic in the show because it is such an essential relationship to the series and you've really built on that bond it felt and like it you've crafted it in a way where it felt like it wasn't just Percy feeling the betrayal in that moment it was Luke too because at least in my interpretation of what I was seeing from Luke it, it seemed like he really thought that like you know he'd found he'd he'd found or built a partner out of Percy yeah I mean I think like I said, a little this a little runs together for me, so I'm not positive, but I don't think in the book that Annabeth is there at the end. Yeah, no. Right? Yeah. And so I think um that I think is probably why I'm having some of that feeling is that with Percy, because this is all news and because he sort of only knows the parts of Percy he, that have been shown to him in this short amount of time, um, he can tell himself, um, I'm right. I know I'm right. And then the moment Annabeth is looking at him, the moment he's observed in that moment, I think the the guilt is so apparent because she, I mean, she heard him saying things that I think he knows are a betrayal of um, her and everything she believes in. And so I, I think that was that was important too, you know, having having that dynamic, the the um, Luke and Annabeth family dynamic really kind of get turned up in the mix and and turning up Luke in 102 and trying to give him as much material into as we can just kind of i think a lot of that was in annabeth's in the in the book and and we felt like there's there's plenty of time for annabeth to have her moment like this all needs to be you know in service of making sure that by the time you leave camp percy feels like luke is his best friend mm -hmm. yeah the luke and annabeth relationship i i have thought a lot about this um since watching 108 because in the book he is so often a blind spot for her and that that Percy just can't understand that. And in the show, their dynamic is particularly interesting to me because rather than learn about their relationship through Annabeth, we have learned it through Luke's point of view, that she's his little sister. 
um, and that he's always on her side and all of that. But we only sort of get pieces of that story from Annabeth herself. So I do want to ask, who is Luke to Annabeth in your mind? And uh, how does this new version of the betrayal scene sort of play into that? Because she actually has a role in it now. I think Luke occupies um, sort of a, a range of functions for her. You know, I mean, I think he is, um, he's obviously her big brother to the extent that has any uh, inherent meaning in this context. I think he is her oldest friend, I think, in in, in a meaningful way. Um, he is not a peer. You know, I mean, I think her desire to act up um, to to be competent and stoic and older and sort of present as being an adult, basically, I think comes a little bit from from feeling like a kid around him. I think, um, you know, for somebody that doesn't really have authority figures in your life, having this one authority figure who is so anti-authoritarian is a weird um, head trip, I think, probably for her that will take her quite some time to sort out. But, um, you know, I think that betrayal is trauma. Right. I mean, I think to to feel like there's this, you know, your mom will talk to you and your dad kicked you out of the house. And like, you know, I, I think there's, you know, already a complicated relationship with authority. And then to have this one person who felt like they were in your corner turn out to be um, dishonest in, in, a, in a really material, intimate way. It's hard to hard to come back from um, and exciting, I guess, as storytelling to think about where that goes over, you know, the next four seasons of this iteration of the story um and what does that fifth book look like you know when you've got all of that material um built up with with a different kind of torque behind it and, and crashing i personally i was thinking a lot about uh the titan's curse after watching that <laughs> just knowing what what luke um does to her in that book yeah yeah and 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 right i mean it's like I, we're sitting in this moment that's, that's i think is weird for us as it is for an audience of um feeling like before you watch the show, the books exist whole, right? It's one experience. Mm. In the middle of it, the books exist in this weird, this dual state of having been like 20% rethought. Um, and so you look ahead at what's going to happen in those next four books, but it's all going to get this treatment, right? It's all going to sort of like become a part of this story. So it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's strange to sort of look at this and feel like, oh, we've been told 20% of the story we've been told 20% of a story um, that is going to track what's left, but it's not it, um, not it literally any more than, you know, than this first book was. So. Mm -hmm. He'll still do all, they'll, they'll have all the interactions from the fourth book, but I'm sure it'll feel a lot different. <laughs> than it, than it did yeah, I'd like it too. I'd, I'd like to see where you're, where you can take it. That'll hurt <laughs> me even more. <laughs> That's our job. <laughs> I think coming back to these books as well as we've been doing has really like opened my eyes to how many different lenses you can look at them through and how each one sort of leads you to different things. So I really am enjoying the fact that the show is taking me on a lens that I haven't thought of. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's like it's so um, it's so subject to that turntable, I guess, that um, that I feel like you have to be able to experience a story through where as the light changes, all of the suggestions and subtexts and, and all of that change with it. Um, if it's sturdy enough, it'll hold up to that. Um, you know, you can look at it in any direction you want to, and, and it's just as interesting. So I think that was that was sort of the goal, was to give it that, that next dimension. While we're talking about Luke, I do want to talk backstory. 
um, because we got hints of what happened to his mom. Um, not the full story at all, but just the the smallest pieces of it in 106 rather than, you know, season five when it comes up in the book. So I'm curious, where did that move come from? Um, some of it's unavoidable, right? I mean, I think Rick has been open that there are things that happened in the later books that he just didn't hadn't thought about when he wrote the earlier books. So when you receive them all as one, one canon, um, it's all fair game. And then once it's all, once that's a part of who Luke is, it becomes hard not to talk about it. Um, you know, it, it becomes difficult not to address the fact that in the midst of Percy's um, really complicated search for for his father and for his place in the world, that his his new best friend and and mentor's relationship with his father and understanding of his place in the world seems pretty relevant. I think, you know, pulling Hermes into the casino, um, putting him on screen and um, making him the voice of this, where did that come from? I think that, um, I think it was, it was interesting to me to meet Poseidon through a number of different um, audiences um, and, and, and um, uh, you know, people kind of explaining to us who they thought he was. And um, that, that sort of sense of, um, you know, uh, what this authority figure in the family told me about parenting was just this really hard thing to say no to in this story. Um, mm. You know, of really, I think in a way, aside from Sally, you know, kind of explaining why she was so enthralled with him, the first person who's kind of going to bat for him mm. and saying like, you should really consider giving him a break because it isn't easy for him either. You know, in a story that's about a kid learning to understand his own growth and you know his own sort of movement towards adulthood i think a part of that is seeing your parents as adults also and seeing them as people and somebody had to say that to him i think somebody mm -hmm. had to say um you you think everything is a certain way and i'm telling you it's so much more complicated than that so it was coming from both directions you know i think it was sort of wanting wanting hermes to be a part of the story for that reason and and because luke was so important to it you know so important to percy's journey um, wanting that connection to feel like it had mass in the middle of the season and substance. And, you know, even when you're getting away from Luke's story and he hasn't been on screen for a while, he's part of it. You know, he's he's a, a part of Percy's journey that he he's never really going to be able to um, stop thinking about. Mm -hmm. the, the reason I'm asking is that I this is one of the changes that I've been thinking a lot about because that question of, like, what happened to Luke is, to me, one of one of several centers of the series like with it comes the entire Annabethalia Luke relationship but also like his quest for the golden apples and also what happened to his mom and it's like only once Percy understands all of that that he's really able to see Luke clearly in the end and you've you've introduced it in this really interesting way where it only suggests what might have happened but almost mm. in a way that like I mean, you could walk away from that thinking, like, I don't have the full story, but you also may walk away from it thinking, I have enough of the story to understand Luke, and yes. not realizing that you don't have, you really don't have any of it. <laughs> you just said it, right? It's like, I think, um, you understand Luke as well as you should in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of, just as like a story management issue, I think I'm I'm really mistrustful of um, deciding on backstory for the sake of itself. I feel like um, I, I try really hard to let the story decide what the backstory was. And I think in that moment of season one, 
the story demanded that we understand a certain amount about Luke and we understand a certain amount about his relationship with Hermes, but it wasn't demanding anything beyond that. And any more sort of details we applied to it felt like um, that's me monkeying around with stuff just to sort of, you know, um, make it make it feel detailed, but it's not helping your experience of, of the emotional journey of this story. And so I avoid it. I, I really consciously kind of avoid, I'd avoid even answering your question about what I think happened then, because I think what happened then is going to reveal itself through through Percy's eyes, really, and through the present day lens of the story as it moves forward. But yeah, I think you get the guts of it. I mean, that is a severely broken home. And I think Luke's experience of having a divine parent was somebody who not only couldn't protect his mother from awful things, but may have had something to do with it. That sucks. You know, I mean, that's a that's a pretty awful way to, to grow up and think about your dad. And um, I think just that idea is more than enough to understand how you get to Luke in episode eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this series made me think about the gods as parents specifically in a way I hadn't really thought of them before. And I think that scene really like the way Hermes is in that scene, it's like very humanizing, but specifically in this one sort of element. Yeah. I mean, I would not to like descend too far into it, but like, I think one of the things that makes some of these stories so universal um, the experience of someone who is larger than you and retreats to other places you're not allowed to go to and makes decisions you don't understand and is stronger than you and has been around for longer than you. Like, we've all done that. Like, that's mm-hmm. the experience of being a child. And the idea that these stories that are about that point of view are so old and so hard to shake and, and feel so true, I can't imagine that they aren't connected. Um, and so I think in, in us trying to embrace that idea, we're not adding anything. I think that's not already a part of it. I think just the idea that, you know, the ultimate unknowable authority figure, um, is also dealing with the tension and, and, and difficulties and complications of being an unknowable authority figure, um, feels both in the soul of, of, of a story about the gods and also really specifically human and, and about a parent-child relationship. I want to switch gears a little bit just because I want to make sure we ask this particular question. (laughs) Uh, Because uh, speaking of Luke, I I couldn't help but notice uh, the parallels between season one, episode eight of Percy Jackson and season four, episode nine (laughs) of Black Sails with, uh, for those who haven't seen Black Sails, the episode opening on a sword training flashback that's used as a framing device for the eventual conflict what i am calling the dual dual structure (laughs) 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 and i was really curious uh why uh bringing that structure to percy jackson and also generally what about it speaks to you because i i love it it's great to see but um yeah like i'm just i'm curious what what brought you back to it i don't know um (laughs) I think um, the kind of the only way I really understand how to figure these things out sometimes is just feeling them out. Like you, you kind of keep staring at the materials on the table until they start to take a shape. And sometimes the shapes are familiar. Is that because I had done it already and kind of knew what it looked like, or is that because there's something in the DNA of their their dynamic that 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 was suggesting it, and so there's some kind of convergent evolution happening? Um, I don't know. Um, aware of it, you know, very aware of it. And, and, and I think, um, always a little bit, um, hesitant to lean into it too hard, but there's just something so clean about 
you know, I think you'd only known Luke for like six pages before he's introduced as, you know, the best swordsman in camp and that that's his thing. And that the idea that the moment in which he's kind of feeling out who Percy is and is this somebody who's going to listen to what I have to say is happening while he's um, also kind of seeing what he's made of and seeing how he responds mm. to being pushed and felt clean and, and, and right. Um, you know, the structures are similar. The, the, the outcome is sort of pretty different, you know, and all, all its beats are different, but, um, I don't know. I only have one head. And so sometimes stuff comes <laughs> out of it. It's other stuff. I, I don't know how to sort of fully preempt that. I will say I what I was was getting from it was um, I kept flashing back to the line about like by teaching someone how to fight you are teaching them how to defeat you yeah. like that that was what was playing in my head that whole time <laughs> I was because it, partially because it was playing into my sort of interpretation of that's this relationship um, in the show with Luke seeming to trust Percy a lot and that he has to trust Percy a lot to actually take him out into the woods and teach him how to fight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I guess there's there's a conversation to be had of watching all of these shows and then trying to figure out how they're commenting on each other. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure they are. But yeah, I think there's some there's some 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 truth to that, um, you know, in terms of the more you try to teach me what you know, the more I'm teaching you what I know, you know, and teaching you how I react, teaching you how I react to things. Maybe that's part of it too. You know, maybe part of it is is wanting to sort of. Um, I think if I'm if I'm trying to make it really simple, I think I just sort of like the idea of um, formal um, opposition to each other before it becomes substantive. Um, this idea yeah. that there are opponents with weapons who are on the same side, you know, before they become opponents in 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 a much more visceral way. Um, it's just kind of an elegant way of um, framing it, I guess, framing their the you know what. These, these things that are, you know, that are a problem for them, you know, that are a problem for Flint and Silver and that are a problem for, for Luke and Percy exist while they're friends and they're standing there with weapons in their hands and these differences exist. They just haven't exploded yet. Um, it's kind of an interesting tap dancing on a landmine kind of a moment of, you know, <laughs> at, any, at any moment it's going to blow and then we're going to have to actually deal with this. This is an interesting tone. It's interesting because I... One thing I was thinking, I've, I've been sort of slowly working my way through uh, Professor, uh, is it is it Naji? Naj, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Naj's class, uh, or the 24-hour hero. And I, I came across one line that I thought was really interesting, where he was talking about how, um, like, Heracles, or Hercules, is named after, like, glory to Hera. And it's basically, the connection he draws is how um, the antagonist in mythology shapes the hero arguably the most out of anything beyond the hero's deeds. And I read that line and I immediately thought of Flint and Silver and that scene in the woods. But then hearing you explain it now, it also made me think like, oh, I think there that is the connection for me, at least with the Luke and Percy, with Luke and Percy as well. It's like how they as each other's antagonists shape each other. Yeah, I mean, I think they're um, Flint and Silver become, th those two characters I think become enmeshed in each other. Um, in a way where they they're kind of each leaving a mark on the other. That story is a little different, I think, because one of those people is sort of defined as being a vessel who will kind of is more predisposed to accept those kinds of things, is looking for things to belong to. Um, mm. Percy and 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 Luke, I think that that situation is is um, colored a little differently. But yeah, I mean, I think if. When this is working right, I think the dynamic between, you know, protagonist and antagonist or hero and villain or whatever you want to call them 
um, should be doing that. You know, I mean, I think it's all, they're all stories about ourselves and stories about how, um, you know, you wrestle with the things in your head. And, and so I think the, the dynamics of, of those characters should be approximating that, that they're fully opposed to each other and still really connected and part of the same conversation. Um, well, since we're coming up on an hour, final question, maybe looking toward season two, but also looking at what you have done in this season. I, I do want to talk about how you've written Thalia into this season, um, because Thalia's presence in The Lightning Thief and The Sea of Monsters has always been a favorite subject of mine uh, to get lost in, because she, to me, feels kind of like a ghost haunting the story, because she is haunting like everyone around Percy, Annabeth Grover, and Luke, and he's hearing her story from all of these different perspectives, and she's in his nightmares, and <laughs> she's just kind of built <laughs> into a, a myth in those first two books. Um, and so I want to ask generally about how you've chosen to depict Thalia in this first season, but also specifically about 104, where Annabeth talks about how she feels Thalia made her earn her affection, um, when and which Percy immediately rejects and compares to the gods. And I just kind of the image of Thalia that we're building and that Percy is building in this season. I think there was a question in there somewhere. <laughs> you just put a question mark at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that in in a way is a little bit what we were just talking about is that in that moment that just felt true that like in a, in a conversation that that's really defining a lot of Percy and Annabeth's some uh, ongoing meet cute I guess they're sort of <laughs> each other um, which is um, you know and trying to figure out what unconditional love is and if it exists and if it's meaningful and if you're entitled to it that it feels so clear that in some respect Luke is that for her um, he says it. I always be on her side and I don't, you know, there's no, there's no question. There's no getting between us. Immediately, if you tell me she has another best friend, I want the other. And I kind of want to hear that, um, you know, there's a different kind of unconditional love and, and, and a kind that comes with um, a little more mistrust at the heads of it, um, a little harder to, harder one. Um, mm -hmm. And so that presented itself really in the context of that scene. I don't think there was any, that wasn't tracking a decision we had made. Like there, there wasn't this picture of of the show's version of Thalia that 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 scene was referring back to. I think there was a picture of who Thalia was that we deliberately left, let the clay remain soft, I guess, as it were, and kind of waiting for the story to tell us who who what kind of shading she wanted. So I, I think if I'm remembering right, I think that's kind of how it happened. Um, but it feels true, and you know, the moment you you hear. Um, or say it, it feels true. And it's like, well, that's part of this story now. And and so I think the some of the fun of season two will be watching Thalia come into focus in this story through the lens that this story wants to understand her through. And I think when she de-arborizes, I don't know, like when she, <laughs> you know, manifests, she's going to be Thalia from the books in the same way that Percy is Percy from the books, but she's going to have this other color I guess to her that that comes from the very specific Percy and Beth and Luke story that 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 the show is telling yeah like she has that whole myth built up around her and then she appears finally and it's like now I have to recontextualize everything that I know about you and figure out who you are yeah so like I mean you know Annabeth is so standoffish I guess or or hard, hard to know in the first couple of episodes and Luke is so clearly not that and so it immediately suggests, was like, where's she getting this from? Like, like, you know, what experience is this a reflection of? And the idea that there was somebody who's even harder to know and even more kind of, of, um, uh, of a, a tough nut to crack 
immediately I start leaning into Thali even more. It's like I, I wanna I wanna get to know her. Um and I wanna put her in a room with this idiot who, you know, <laughs> somehow won Annabeth over, but like it's not gonna look like just feels like uh like like fun story to look forward to. Hmm. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Happy to. Fingers crossed for season two and beyond. And everyone listening should go watch The Old Man and also Black Sales now that the season is over. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. Of course, this was great. Um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thank you all for listening to another very special episode of Monster Donut. And thank you, John, for joining us. Yeah, huge thank you to John for taking the time to join us when he is super busy doing a million things. Next time, we may or may not have something else special planned, so stay tuned. Um, But in the meantime, uh, we are going to be doing our wrap-up eventually. Uh, So send in your questions or analyses, anything we missed. We love reading everything from y'all um and it's so much fun to get to talk about it in full once it's all out in the world uh so this will be a special wrap-up because we unlike the rest of them haven't known how it ended until we (laughs) we had the wrap-up yeah so yeah and um you can do so uh you can email us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com you can also reach us on twitter tiktok and instagram and we are at PJOPod on all of those socials. Um, so if you want to DM us a question, you can also leave your questions on Spotify where uh, you can respond to this or another of our season one episodes. Also, thank you to all of our patrons. RK, Window Wells, Emily Ann Bonnie, Roman Consul, Latino Kaya, Patty VCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Reina Avila Ramirez Ariano, Charlie McNeil, Bronte Levo, Chief and Plays, Robert Gamer, Kels, Kari, Layla Hussein, Mason Bowman, Casey Cassidy, and Evelyn Zamudio. Now that the show is over, I have so much more time to actually edit and post all of the things that are supposed to be up on Patreon. <laughs> so, including reactions, spoiler episode, I went back and looked at that the other day. Oh, in our in our 108 <laughs> recording, Emily went off for like 30 minutes about uh, uh, literally 30 minutes. It was literally 30, 30 minutes, minutes straight about <laughs> the various ages, like the golden age, silver ages, etc. Some of that conversation is in that episode. Some of it is not because it was three minutes. So if you want that full conversation, I'll probably also post that on Patreon. <laughs> if you want to just hear me rant until I devolve into incoherence? That's that's what it actually is. It was all um, very interesting to me. It was just 30 minutes long. <laughs> So if you would like to join our Patreon, you can find the links to do that in our link tree, again, on all of our social media at PJOPod. Well, see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.